Good to go now. It says I got 12 minutes. <laughs> oh, whoa. I got two hours. Yes. <laughs> and at the end of that message, he says something that probably you have not heard before. It's not what will you have to show for your work, your money, for other things. But it's who will you have to show for the way you use your money. Because at the end of the parable that Jesus told, it said that you, have made, you can make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus just sort of, it's like there's two realities to him. There's this one, and there's the heavenly realm. I don't think we live in as much an awareness of the heavenly realm as, um, as Jesus did, certainly. I don't know that we're motivated by the heavenly realm because Jesus said you can invest now, you can use your money now so that people will welcome you into eternal dwellings. I don't know what that means, but I think I would kind of like to have some friends in heaven waiting for me and having a place all fixed up. But that's what Jesus taught. And now we're going to go on into the next part. And yeah, it's about money. Thanks a lot, Charlie. The money sermon. <laughs> Why do we talk about money? Because Jesus, do you know Jesus told more parables and taught more about money than he did heaven, hell, or love? So it must be, why is it important? It's important to Jesus because his followers can get sidetracked, tripped up on how they regard and use money, maybe more than anything else in their lives. In fact, I believe that we'll discover that how you use your money is a, a game changer is a gateway. If you want to get if you want to get the rest of your life in order, start with your money. Now that's unusual to hear that, isn't it? Usually if we want to get everything else in order, then we'll get to that. But what if you got your money uh, management biblically lined up? How would you be with your character, your relationships, and all the other things that you are and do? Jesus seemed to think it was important. Let's read here. Well, first of all, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> if someone came to you, and I mean legit, not, not Nigerian prince, but I mean legit. Someone came to you and they said, you know, and you can check it out right here, authenticate it. There is a trust fund that we want to give to you of uh, $10 million. But we want you to go through a three-year probationary period. And during that three-year probationary period, we will give you $50,000 a year. Depending on how you manage that money will factor into whether or not you will be able to receive the trust fund of $10 million. Now, like I said, you checked it out. It's all legit. It's not a scam. And so you get your first $50,000. Take you through the first year. So you do that every year. How would you manage your money? What do you think would be the important principles to manage your money by so that you'd be able to um, be qualified for the $10 million trust? What do you think? Return on investment. Return on investment. Okay, what else? All right, 
your bills, be responsible. What else? What's that? Could be. We don't know, do we? But they haven't given us the criteria. We don't know. But you're thinking, though, it's probably important to be a good you know, financial money manager. So what if you found out at the end of the three years that, yeah, they were looking to make sure that you handled the money correctly, that you kept up with your bills, that you didn't get behind, you did not get in debt, that you did not waste money, you did not spend it frivolously on yourself. You would expect all that, right? Rhonda hit it right on the head. What if a criteria for getting the $10 million was that you had used the 50000 every year and you had given away 10% every year? How many of us would they qualify for the 10 mil? Well, we're going to see here in this passage that there's a parallel that the way we manage what's called here material wealth is going to be prescriptive for how we are entrusted with true riches. Most of us are like, wow, I'd just like to have me some basic riches. I'm not sure about the true riches yet. Well, it's what you do with what you've got that will determine what you get and who you get it from. So in verse uh, 10, it says, oh, by the way, and this is after that parable, you know, that uh, Daniel talked about last week. After the parable, the money manager, remember, the uh, owner said, you are shrewd. And I'm kind of, I'm amazed at what you did. And he patted him on the back. Now, the Pharisees who were listening into this, they were like, are you kidding me? I'd kill him. I'd, I'd kill him. I mean, if you can get your hands on Ernie Madoff, Bernie Madoff, I mean, yeah, let's, the guy, he squandered our money, let's kill him. But all the other people, the sinners and the common people were like, yes, Jesus told a parable about sticking it to the man. All right. <laughs> oh, well, he just, uh, he just gave us permission to... Uh, Use the finances of others we're entrusted with in ways that our owner might not approve of. Really? Well, let's go down into this next part and see what he meant. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. If you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth... Who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Okay, so some operative words here are trustworthy. Now, what is trustworthy contrasted with in those verses? Dishonesty. Trustworthy. Now, if someone, if you were to entrust some of your stuff to someone or your money to a market manager, what would you expect? You would expect that that person would utilize that of yours for your advantage and benefit, right? You would expect that. 
if that person were to use it dishonestly, selfishly, if you found out instead of investing the money you had given this person to invest, they went out and bought a big screen, how would you feel? You wouldn't pat him on the back and say, hey, you're screwed, I like that. No, <laughs> we're going to the police and we're going to put a stop to that. We value trustworthiness. I mean, this is just, this works at the dollar store. I mean, if you can't be trustworthy when you're at an entry-level position, there's not much chance you're going to be promoted there, co-op, Alpine Bank, anywhere you work. You can't be promoted and entrusted with more until you've been faithful with the little. <laughs> my dad, I was thinking this morning, um, got a leak in one of my toolboxes and one of my, a set of pliers is starting to rust. And I thought about the unpardonable sin in the home I grew up in was if I left dad's tools out, outside. You, you guys, you guys, where did they go to school for that? I, I mean, there, there are a lot of things I could get by with. But picking on my little brother, who really deserved it and told on me when he shouldn't have, <laughs> and, and leaving dad's tools out were two things that you just did not do. Because that was not being faithful or trustworthy because my dad kept his tools in good shape and he valued his tools. Dad, can I borrow the car? Son, where's my hammer? Oh, what does that have to do with anything? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Trustworthy and dishonest. Now, it says if you're trustworthy, you'll be given true riches. All right, who's going to be given these true riches? If you're trustworthy with someone else's property, you'll be given your own. Who's going to be doing that? Who's the who in the passage? Who are you responsible to? Who are you accountable to for how you use the money you have, your worldly wealth? Well, Doug, I'm American. I'm not accountable to nobody. I mean, my wife gets on me every once in a while, but other than that, I just do what I want. Is there someone, is God interested in how you manage your worldly wealth? Does he notice, does he take, is that important? Well, apparently it is. Last week, Daniel told you about his, this is how God sees money. It's a tool. It's a test. How will you utilize what he's given you? Now, if you're... If the owner that entrusts you with something is someone who is uh, trustworthy, someone who is trustable, respectable, someone who is uh, diligent, someone who is generous, and that person tells you to utilize what they're entrusting you with according to his character and values, what do you do? Well, you don't utilize it dishonestly. You don't waste it. You do it in keeping with the character of the one who entrusted you with it. Now think about that for a moment. If God entrusted you with what you have, he's looking at how you utilize it. And he's looking to see if you're trustworthy in worldly wealth because he wants to give you true riches. He's not stingy. I mean, look at the universe. There's a lot more extra stuff out there than we really need. Have you noticed it's all in color? Do you know how much it costs to do color on stuff? He's extravagant. 
And he wants you to utilize what you've got in such a way, in keeping with his character, so that he can trust you with true riches. True riches. What are those true riches? Probably some here now and some there and then. I think I want to get in on that. I mean, if he's entrusted me with this worldly wealth, I like it all right. And he says, I can have better than that. I want some of that. That's what he says he wants to do for me. He wants to entrust me with more, uh, more things after I've been trustworthy with what I've got. Now we go down to the next verse. Verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You've heard that verse before. It says in the next verse, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. Like, <laughs> yeah. Because they thought they could do both. They thought they could serve God and money. They thought they could do their thing for God and then what they did with their money was on their own. That's why they scoffed at Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, verse, 20, verse 19, this is a, a parallel passage. Where we are in Luke is parallel to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is a Sermon on the Mount. You'll find similar material. He expands here on the passage we just read about serving two masters. Here's what he says. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. All right, there's two investments you can make. If you make your investments here just on earth, then it's all can be taken away. It can be stolen. It can deteriorate. You know, money talks, right? What's it say? Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> so there's two places you can invest. You can invest here. It's very shaky. Or you can invest in heaven. How on earth do you invest in heaven? I know how to invest in the bank here. I go down to Alpine Bank, maybe. Or maybe Bank of Colorado or some other fine bank in our community, wherever you have your money. I know how to put my money in a bank or invest. How do you do that in heaven? How do you, your treasure, now the next verse, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I thought it was the opposite. I thought where your heart is, is where your treasure will go. But that's not what he says. He says, where you put your treasure your heart will follow. Are you investing enough in the kingdom of God so that your heart follows, so he has your heart? Now we know from other passages that primarily Jesus teaches that the way that we utilize our money to invest in heaven is by giving it to people who need it. He had just said in the previous passage, you give to people so that they'll welcome you into eternal dwellings. What if, what if you don't get credit for what you leave when you die? What if you get credit for what you have given? 
Wow. It challenges me. We've, we've often said who dies with the most toys wins. <clears throat> no. Because when you die, you leave it all behind. And the eternal kingdom credits you for what you have given. Wow. That's pretty tough stuff. No one can serve two masters. We can even go back to the Luke passage now. You can't serve both God and money. Now, if you have a study Bible, the word money there can be mammon, which is a technical word for materialism. Well, they didn't use it then. But it was an idol. It was an idol. Now, it's very interesting that the Jewish people, in the time of the kingdom of David and Solomon and after that, some, for some reason, they could not pry themselves away from idol worship. They would even throw their kids in the fire to try to get some god, Baal or some god, to favor them with their crops or uh, something else. They worshipped idols up until the day they were captured and they were carried away into captivity. Seventy years later, they came back to Jerusalem out of captivity, rebuilt the temple and the city, and, and when Jesus came 400 years later, the Jews never worshipped another idol. It broke them. Idol worship was never a problem. But Jesus is saying there is an idol. The idol's not made of stone that you bow down to. The idol is money. The love of money. Love one, hate the other. Serve one, despise the other. If someone or something is your master, that means that you are owned. You are owned by. Are you owned by God or owned by money? Materialism is what we call it now. Now, what are the chances in America, in our culture, that a good Christian person is going to be able to spot materialism in their own heart? We live in a sea of materialism. I mean, you can't hardly watch a program on TV or a sporting event that someone comes on and wants you to buy something. They come on, they want you to be displeased with what you got so that you're going to buy their product. We are awash in material. It's hard. You can't see materialism in the window. You can't see greed in the mirror. And that's one reason why Jesus warns us, because the greatest competitor for your heart is materialism. God or materialism? Now, why is that? Because materialism or money promises some God-like things. The idols promise God-like things. Money promises security. But money lies. It promises status, favor, power. And so we always want more so we can be able to have more security, more favor, more status, more whatever. Serving money is just a never-ending cycle. It's an appetite that's never fulfilled. The more you eat, the more you want. And Jesus is saying, be very careful here because you can't serve God and money. And we're probably like thinking, well, there's probably a spectrum on there. You know, I'm not serving money 
all together. I'm serving God some. I'm probably more like right here. It's not what Jesus said. He said, you are serving God in money. Do you, do you know back in Jesus' day how willing a master was to share a servant with another master? I think I'll go over here and work for George for a while. Oh, no, you're not. I own you, and you will serve here. You can't serve two masters. How do you, how do you make your way with what Jesus is saying here? And the, like I said a moment ago, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. They're like, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that mammon, money, materialism was a big deal. They believed that they could use their money how they wanted as long as they gave their tithe. They were strict about tithing. They even tithed on garden herbs, dill and cumin. They would take, if they got ten little sprigs, they would take one and take it to the temple. They were meticulous in their tithe, but Jesus well, their reaction here shows that they were the ones who loved money. They loved money. Is money the root of all evil? No. We're going to go over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and look into some application of Jesus' teaching by Paul. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the, for the love, the love of money. Whoa, we were just, Jesus just talked about loving your master. Loving one, loving your master. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's, it's again a warning. In our day and time, how do, we, how do we even figure out where we are? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a lot of money, as long as it doesn't have you. It can't be your master. Here's another interesting thing. When you read the New Testament stories of Jesus, do you identify more with the sinners or the Pharisees? And this is a trick. I just got to tell you up front. <laughs> Do you, do you identify more with the poor or the rich? Here's the weird thing. I always thought for a long time, I was like the poor sick guy that Jesus healed. And in some ways, I, I've been there, and I need that. But you know what? The words that Jesus directed at people in his day who were considered well-off, well-to-do, including Pharisees, We're more like them than the poor sick people in the New Testament. And when he talks to people who have money, oftentimes we're like, well, that can't mean me. That must mean those guys that live up in Aspen. That can't mean me because I'm not rich. What does it take to be rich in our day and time? Do you know one-third of the world Population lives on $2 a day. Are you rich in comparison to that? Pretty much. If you make $40,000, how, 
household income a year, you're in the top 5% of all wage earners in the world. Now, if you're in the top 5%, that's an A. I mean, you're ahead of most everybody else. We are rich. You're rich. Does it feel funny to say that? Because we're always comparing ourselves with people who have more. I want you to say this to yourself. I'm rich. How'd that feel? Look at somebody next to you and say, you're rich. <laughs> There's two things you never talk about, right? Money and religion. And, and nobody wants to know, you don't want anybody to know what you make or anything about your financial affairs. We're very paranoid about it. Why is that? Because we want to be free. But we're the rich. And so if we are the rich, how did Jesus tell rich people to live? I mean, if you're rich already, you might as well be good at it. Have you known some rich people who weren't very good at it? I mean, they went around like a snob. They were very arrogant, mistreated people of lower financial status. Have you known people like that? Well, you don't want to be rich like that. You want to be rich the way God describes a person is to be rich. Now look down into uh, 1 Timothy 6, <clears throat> 17. Command those who are rich in this present world. Have you ever tried to tell a rich person what to do? <laughs> I mean, think about it for a moment. You don't Rich people don't take kindly to that, do they? You can't park here. What do you mean I can't park here? Whoa, 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 wait a second. We're the rich. I almost forgot that for a second. Command the rich people. All right, now Paul's writing this to Timothy. Timothy is already identified as kind of a timid guy. He's trying to bring him up in the pastorate so he's going to be able to take care of the people and lead them and teach them. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, go up there, command the rich people. All right, today I want all of you who are rich, all of you with household incomes over $40,000 a year, you rich, yeah, you, you rich people, I'm going to command you. Get ready because I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to love this part. <clears throat> Not to be arrogant. Oh, that's going to really work, isn't it? That's going to really work. I mean, if somebody's arrogant, they've already defined themselves as not willing to listen to whatever criticism you have to say to them. Okay, all you rich people in this room, don't be arrogant. Don't be so that people can't tell you what to do. So that God can't tell you what to do. And nor to put your hope in wealth that is so uncertain, but to put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That, that, that sentence just gets me. Most of us think God would really like to have us poor. If he had his druthers about it, he would just grind us into the dirt. He would just want us not to have anything. But God is lavish 
extravagant and provides everything for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you are utilizing your worldly wealth in a trustworthy manner. And if God is the one you are accountable to, which He is, whether you're here or not, a trustworthy manner means we be generous like He is generous. When people think of you, do they think of generous? Do they think of you as a generous person? Um, Command them. Okay, here's the second one. Command them. To do good and be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. All right, now I'm talking to you. If your household income is 40000 I mean, if it's even twenty five, you're ahead of 85% of the world, so you're still rich. So I'm talking to you, you rich people out there, and me. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and willing to share. <clears throat> i got to admit, this has not been my strong suit. I mean, we have been faithful to give of a tithe to support the kingdom of God and its movement in the church, but generosity beyond that, wow. I've been sort of taken to the, uh, well, God has spoken to my heart through preparation for this message. How generous are you outside of your tithe to the church? Or do you think, well, that pretty well, that's it. How generous when you pull up to a stoplight and there's a person there with a cardboard sign? Do you kind of inwardly recoil? Reach over and drive quietly to lock the doors? Or you roll the window down and hand them something? I know I'm talking to me as well as anyone. I think, Susie, you've, years ago you prepared some packages that you could have a water bottle and some uh, food that you could just have in your car. And when you came up to someone, you could hand it to them. That's a great idea. I want to get back to that. But there's, there's so much beyond that <clears throat> of being generous, of a generous spirit. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. He's talking to rich people here who think they've got it made. And he's saying, guys, you're not even there yet. Utilize your worldly wealth in such a way that's consistent with the wealth giver, being generous, being trustworthy, being responsible, so that you lay a foundation for the next life, and so that you get into the really um, good life, the true life, here, the true riches, here. Now think for a moment. I want you just to think and pray in your own heart, in your your thoughts. God, what are true riches? And then I want you to ask God, how can I change my financial operation to be trustworthy? and to gain true riches from you.
So let's go back to Luke. No one can serve two masters. <coughs> and if we're going to serve God as our master, going back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, is going to give us how to serve God as our master. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, or your body, what you will wear. Okay. During the past week, did you have anxiety about basic necessities of life or money for any need that you might have upcoming? Can you, Jesus says, don't worry. He says, don't worry about the basic necessities, let alone college or what may be out there beyond basic necessities. Isn't life more than that? Go to the next passage, next verse. <clears throat> Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. Are you not much more valuable than they? I love this verse. Do you ever, do you ever watch the birds that they come to feeders in our backyard? And I kind of watch them. And I say, God loves those birds, but he, he loves me. I'm, I'm more valuable. Go to the next part. <clears throat> Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Okay, worry is the opposite of trust. If you are trusting God, you don't have to worry. If you're fearful and anxious, it's hard to trust God, isn't it? Can't serve two masters. Go ahead. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, that's here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Don't worry about your threads. God's got you. You know, another way to tell if you're rich or not, <clears throat> look down. Do you have shoes? If you do, you're rich. Go ahead. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, drink, or where for the pagans now the pagans are people who don't believe in God or trust God or love God they run after all these things all these things in life that money can buy and your heavenly father already knows that you need them but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well it's a matter of priority isn't it if you seek the second place things first you don't get either one if you seek God first, you get it all. Seek God first, His kingdom and righteousness, and all these things <coughs> will be added to you. Now, if you are as trustworthy as a bird or a blade of grass, if you've got just a solid, secure trust that God's got you, that He's going to take care of you, like Melissa when she had surgery this week, I've never seen someone move toward having surgery or come out of it with more peace and more security and strength. 
We're proud of you, Melissa, and we're so glad it, it turned out well. If you are solid and secure in your faith and trust for God, then you are able to move in this world in a way that is full of peace and joy and love and generosity. If you know he's got you and you've got what you need, then you can give to others what they need, right? If you're not sure you're going to have enough for yourself, you're not likely to give to anybody else, right? So it's just not a matter of loving God. A lot of people say they love God, but they don't really trust him. Oh, God, I love you, but I don't really trust you. If I, if I give 10% to the church, if I give uh, to others, needy people, to other causes, I'm not sure I can trust that you will take care of me and my needs. You can't be trustworthy unless you trust God. But if you trust God, you can be trustworthy with your worldly wealth. He'll take care of you. You'll be secure. I remember... Vividly, we first moved to Colorado in 1976 from New Mexico. And Rebecca was eight months pregnant with uh, Daniel. And we moved up here to uh, help with Mid-Valley Baptist Church. And I was going to be associate pastor. And I was going to be paid $350 a month. Which really wasn't much back then either. <laughs> and a place to stay in the pastor's home. Uh, as it turned out, the apartment wasn't finished, and so Rebecca and I, and then Dan was born, we had a bedroom, one bedroom in this, in this house. And, and so things weren't turning out really well. <clears throat> we drove up here in a U-Haul uh, truck that didn't have the easy glide springs. <laughs> and believe me, Rebecca felt every bump between here and New Mexico. <clears throat> we pulled a uh, 64 Ford with the drivetrain... Uh, disconnected, uh, so that we could tow it, got up here, reconnected the drivetrain, the thing never moved again. <laughs> I mean, the car never moved again. I, I don't know what happened. But I still remember. So here we are, <clears throat> and we're, we're at, in his house looking at Highway 82, and I'm watching the traffic, and the traffic go toward Aspen, and all these expensive cars, and I'm thinking, trust funders. Because I, I had a part-time job working with a moving company, and we moved in a lot of people in and out of Aspen area. And so I knew how they lived, and I'm thinking, trust funders. And I can tell you as clear as a bell, I remember this 40 years later, I heard in my heart, Doug, you're on an unlimited expense account. And it, it shocked me. I, I don't come up with that kind of stuff, do you? And I heard that when we had nothing and no means of gaining anything. But over the years, I can look back and tell you that we have truly had an unlimited expense account. Whatever we needed was provided. I can tell you God is trustworthy. It's hard to trust God when your baby doesn't have milk, but he's trustworthy. It's hard to trust God when you get a medical diagnosis that's difficult, but he's trustworthy. 
It's hard to trust God when you get paid and you look at your bills and they're more than your paycheck. But God is trustworthy. Ron, did you hear that? God is trustworthy. You can trust Him. And if you can trust Him, you can be trustworthy with what He's given you for other people. To the measure that you love and trust God, you will be trustworthy in the way that He would have you utilize your worldly possessions and time and energy. If you have a difficulty trusting Him, it's going to be difficult to be trustworthy. So we go on in the next verse in uh, Luke 17. The Pharisees sneering at Jesus, they thought they could do both. He said, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You see, the Pharisees depended on their accumulation of wealth to make them <clears throat> uh, secure and uh, worthy of respect in the eyes of others. And they could justify their lack of generosity by saying this, that, or the other. They could justify it. I think probably all of us rich people in this room today could justify our lack of generosity. We can justify it. If I were explaining to you, you'd say, well, I understand why you don't give more away. But it says here, oh no, God knows the heart. What people value highly <clears throat> to be seen well in the eyes of people, if that's where your approval comes from, it's detestable to God. Go ahead, justify yourself to people. God knows your heart. And He's the one who is entrusting you with all you've got, who will be judging whether or not you can have more by the way you use what you've got. The law and the prophets, now we get to the hard part. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. Down to that part, I'm good. I understand all that. And everyone is forcing their way into it. What on earth does that mean? How do you force your way into the kingdom? It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now, he's talking to Pharisees and sinners. The Pharisees are meticulous in their law-keeping, at least from what you can judge from the outside. Jesus said, there's not a law that's going to pass away. If, that's what you're, if you're depending on law compliance for your approval before God and men, there's nothing about the law that's going to bend. And if you don't keep every point, every little pin stroke, you don't have it made. It's not going to happen. And then he goes on just puts the nail in the coffin. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. <clears throat> the Pharisees, the Pharisees were experts at uh, having a, a new, a better, upgrading to a new model. Some of, the, some of the rabbis said, you can divorce your wife, and it's okay with God, if she doesn't please you in the way that she cooks the meal. Wow. 
I mean, they had, they had taken this point and they had made it a, a laughing stock. They would divorce for no reason. And the Pharisees were some of the ones who probably had two or three divorces in their resume by this time. And Jesus said, if you divorce and marry another, you commit adultery. Whoa, wait, adultery is one of the big ten. Whoa, oh no. And the disciples in Matthew, when Jesus told them this about adultery uh, and, and marrying and uh, divorcing, marrying somebody else, committing adultery, they said, well, why would anybody get married? Now think about that for a minute. If you can't divorce and marry somebody else, they say, well, why would you get married in the first place? Wait a second. I don't think you're getting it here. God's intention was, and he described it in the law, was that you would be faithful to one woman, one man, for your lifetime. And you would not commit adultery. And that would be in line with his character, and you'd be blessed. He would empower you. And so, how about giving your attention to being happy with the one you're with? How about giving your attention to him being the kind of person who could have a good marriage? Rather than trying to conform your mate into being someone who can have a good marriage. <clears throat> Which doesn't work very well, does it? So Jesus is saying here, God ordained marriage. He intended it for a lifetime. Do what it takes to get yourself into a condition and position where you can be a person in a good marriage. You can be the kind of person you need to be. If you live by the law, you'll have a better life. Believe me, if you don't kill people and steal their stuff, you're going to have a better life. And you're going to be better at life. There's nothing to take away from the law, but those who try to get God's favor by keeping the law and observing it and showing others that they do, well, there's no slack. There is no wiggle room. One slip, and you're in hellfire. Fortunately, Jesus was teaching all of this in light of the cross and resurrection, that he knew grace would come. And those who did not depend on compliance to the law, but rather on the grace that he would give by his death and resurrection. That's where God's approval is, by faith in Jesus. You see, the law is still in force. And yeah, you can be forgiven, but there's consequences when you mess up. You kill somebody or steal their stuff, God will forgive you. But man, you're going to have a price to pay. Grace covers us and forgives us and gives us a sense of cleanliness. But the law is still in effect. So we want to keep the law not for approval, we keep the law from being approved. It's a whole different motivation. You see the difference? We don't live by the law in order to gain God's approval. We have his approval in Jesus, and so we gratefully, empowered, want to live by the law to reflect his character. Does that make sense? Pressure's off. We're approved, we're accepted. We live by the law from that approval. Now, the part about forcing their way into the kingdom. You go through the Bible and you try to find, is there somebody that came running into, you know, bounced into Jesus like a linebacker and said, give me that kingdom. <laughs> well, the Pharisees resisted it and opposed it. 
There's one guy that I, I've never seen this before until I was studying for uh, this message. And it's just a page over in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to tell you this story, an incident of a guy who forced his way into the kingdom. And guess how he did it? Money. You're not going to believe this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus, but because he was so short, he couldn't see over the crowd. He ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Is he forcing himself? Yeah. It was dangerous for him to be in a crowd. He was the tax collector. Boom. Sorry, Zacchaeus. Didn't mean to break your nose. If you get your nose up above the level of my elbow, maybe it wouldn't get hurt. Shorty. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him. The people who saw this said, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I cheated anyone of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Let me ask you. If you knew that today, before you left the building, it would be required that you would give 10% of your monthly income into the offering box. That God demanded it and required it. What rises up within you to oppose that? Because people leave churches over the pastor mentioning money. Whoa, 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 wait a second. What is that? What is that inside that rises up to oppose and resist what God has ordained for our good? That I'd be generous. There's something in there that needs a little violence. When Jesus said, deny yourself, did you think yourself was going to go along with that? When he said, take up your cross, did you think you were going to think that was a good idea? The violent forcing into the kingdom comes in against the resistance of self-centeredness. Wanting to call my own shots, live my own way, resist God's control. It takes violence against that part of myself for me to surrender and receive Jesus and receive all that He has for me. What I said a moment ago about if you knew you had to give 10% before you could leave the building, what inside of you rises up to resist that, to oppose that, to squeeze against that? I'd encourage you to look at that. You don't want that to be a part of who you are. If you want to gain and move into those true riches and be trustworthy with what you have, what God has given you, you need to oppose that part of you that resists the generosity that God has given us the instructions and the spirit for. Zacchaeus forced his way into the kingdom. He had been accumulating money, shackle by shackle, 
had it hidden away, protected. And he said, I'm giving half away. What do you think it took for him to do that? Wow. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. So today, ask God, again, if you didn't get an answer, what are true riches? And how do I need to change my financial operation to uh, be qualified for true riches? Ask him, God, what is that part of me that resists you when you ask something of me? God, I don't want that to be there. I want to be pure-hearted before you. I want to be able to surrender to you without reservation because you have said in you is life abundant. In just a moment, we'll be worshiping and the communion trays are here and on the side. Jesus sealed his offer of grace, forgiveness, and approval by God with his own blood that is represented by the cup. With his body that's represented by the broken bread. As you come and partake here, I pray you'll be overwhelmed with gratitude for the generosity he has shown to us and the gift he has given us, the sacrifice he has made, so that we too may be people of generosity. Let me pray. Lord God, open our hearts to see ourselves. Open our hearts to see you, to see that you are trustable. And that we can not only love you, we can trust you. And in trusting you, we are free of having to protect and secure our own future and our own stuff. And we can live life in a generous way and attract people into your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.